0: Every Arizona
1: homeowner's best friend. Come on around back, Arizona, Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, Rosie on the House, your Saturday morning tradition since 1988. And if you're following along in the Rosie on the House homeowner handbook, you know that it's frost protection is the topic for today's broadcast, along with the canyon hackberry tree. But uh, Justin Ronner from Agriscaping's in-studio, and we thought, you know, it just doesn't feel like frost season. We, we might change that topic just just slightly. Just
2: slightly. I think for our northern Arizona people, it's a great topic. It's something you got to prepare for. So we will talk maybe just a pinch about it, really just to make sure that we're ready for what's coming. But right now, I mean, beautiful time to be outside, beautiful time to be planting just about anything. So it is a wonderful time to be in the garden. If you haven't been out early in the morning as the sun rises, you you. Might not realize you might need a jacket for all of us people whose blood has warmed over the summertime.
1: It's kind of chilly. When I went out to feed the horses this morning, I almost went back inside for a long sleeve. I'm like, no, tough it up.
2: Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Buck up. You just got to toughen it out a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, we need a little bit more of that, that cool weather in the it's morning like, and also the bucking up, you know, like, just get yeah. out there and be, be tough with it. Be right? tough
1: with it. I'm like, when was the last time you were cold? You can handle this for 10 minutes. Right.
2: <laughs> Soak it up because a little <laughs> later on this afternoon, it's going to be a tad warm probably for many of us as well. So beautiful time of year again. And uh, it's you know, we got a great tree of the month. The, the they call it the canyon hackberry on, on our thing. A lot of people know it as the net leaf hackberry. And it's a, a wonderful desert adaptive plant that goes, grows from here to Louisiana. I mean it's something that even in your old home country the the, the, the roamy home country kind of <laughs> there's stuff growing out there too and it's a, it's a wonderful
1: plant uh, for the garden and for nature in general. So we'll talk a bit more about that. Sounds good and if you'd like to join the conversation, one triple eight, seven six seven four three four eight. one triple eight, Rosie for you, anything you want to talk about. Your landscape or garden. Text questions can be sent to 411-923, or you can email us at info at if you need to send a picture, or a little short video, along with your question to help describe whatever it is you're working on. Those are the ways to communicate with us during the broadcast, and we're happy to uh, at least pretend like we know what we're talking about.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, we do. We got a lot of experience. I mean, there's probably over a hundred years of experience just in this room right now. You know, it's uh, it's. It's great. And it's always good to kind of try to deviate from going online to find answers to all your questions to really find people that are local to you, really know what they're doing, and are practicing the stuff that they talk about. And that's an important piece I think that Rosie on the House has done great with for decades and continues to bring that stable source of information that you can count on. So you're not getting all this competing information. You can just get really one source, one channel to get the information that
1: really will work for you and your garden and your home. And that's really the secret. It's the local network. Uh, That's where the information comes from. It's uh, great guys, like I said, all local, uh, many, many of them multi-generation Arizonans and have helped, you know, build and create this beautiful state we live in. And, you know, if we don't know the answer, uh, the network does. That's right.
2: And so we're here to answer your questions about that garden and what's growing in your spaces and trying to help them be as as fruitful as possible and as beautiful as possible. Whatever it is that you're having
1: a challenge with, we can help. So So let's touch on that frost protection briefly. At what temperature do you have to worry about it? Because even when you get below freezing, it doesn't stay there very long if you're down on the desert floor. Maricopa, Pinal, Pima County, how many hours does it take below freezing low 32 degrees for it really to start having a negative effect on our plants?
2: Well, the way I look at it, there's there's four levels of frost protection and numbers you have to look out for. The first number I'm always looking for is 35 degrees. So if I've got a low that's going to be hitting around 35 degrees, I'm going to have to start looking at my tropical-type plants and really be concerned about those. And these tropical plants, if you're living in the north country and still trying to grow bananas, it's still doable, but it's (laughs) a little bit more tough. But if you're down here in the valley, you know, growing bananas, growing a lot of the tropicals, not hard to do, but thirty five degrees would be the point where I start looking. I might need to cover, I might need to change my watering schedule just a little bit to ensure the success of my tree. Because when it hits thirty five, that means there's gonna be a pocket somewhere in the valley, it went down to thirty. And there's another pocket that's up at 40. So you got a 5 degree plus or minus across the valley of the sun here to really ensure that you're going to have success. The next number I'm looking at is 25 degrees. 25 degrees is kind of the first low that I'm going to look at says, I'm going to really need to add some type of cover to support my more tender plants if I want to keep them alive. And then if I see anything sub 20 on my lows, that's more of a hard freeze. That's going to give you the time span of when it's below a freezing point, that's likely to cause some significant long-term damage to your plants that are susceptible to a, a freeze or a frost. And so those are kind of the levels that I'm always looking at to, to gauge how I'm going to approach what's coming next. Uh, first approach for anything, if it's below 35 degrees and I got tropicals, and that's my concern, is if hopefully they're in a pot or something, I could just bring it indoors, especially for those up in the north country working with citrus trees and still growing and trying to grow citrus up in the north the colder spaces of Arizona, best to have them in pots and more of a topiaried experience to be able to have that citrus tree and keep it alive for yourself. Make it indoor, just shift it to indoor. Look about, look into greenhousing uh, as another approach is having something on your property um, to do a bit of greenhousing and that'll offset pretty much any challenge that you may have. But a little bit of frost cloth really goes a long way and um, backing off on water for tropicals when it gets really cold is also another approach, whereas most other plants that need frost protection, we actually increase the watering because that supports an insulative effect that the plant can have for itself, but a little which, different.
1: Which is hard to program your brain because you think, well, if it's going to be freezing and add more water, it's just going to freeze, but that running water does add heat somehow. It adds
2: heat. <laughs> I mean, we, we work with a number of clients that are up in the North Country that – that have uh, river systems and ponds. We've helped them create some nice, you know, we've restored some farms up in uh, Pine Top, Arizona area and stuff. And with those, we actually elected last year, because we anticipated it getting cold and wet, that we kept their river flowing. And it flowed the entire winter. And it actually provided a nice ecosystem that it really built upon itself the following year. But we don't do that every year, we might not keep the water flowing, we might let it freeze over, we might do stuff like that. But it really just depends on the circumstance. But Moving water definitely does increase heat, and you'll see the steam coming off of it. I mean, it's uh, it's a good effect to to warm things around that space and attract wildlife if that's what you want to do. So, depends on where you're at, I guess. So each house is different. So we do highly recommend if you check out com, you can go and get started. Look, click on Get Started, and we will do assessments for you. So wherever you are in Arizona, we'll do an initial assessment to really identify the frame of reference you need to start from for your property wherever it is in Arizona and make sure that you have the right information because these schedules and calendars and all these things that are available to people are really contingent upon where you live and the microclimate that you're growing in. So it's really important to remember that and not just take the general information. Find out what's your custom fit solution for you and that's really the first step.
1: Now, when you put the frost cloth frost cloth on, shrubs are pretty easy cuz you know they're low to the ground and it drapes. But when you see somebody that tries to wrap it like a lollipop on a tree where they bring the frost cloth down and tie around the trunk. That's actually mm, counterproductive. It's pretty
2: counterproductive. I mean, the frost cloth, you need a light cover, and as soon as you start tying it down, you're actually touching more of the surface of that cloth to the plant itself, which makes it susceptible to the frost. It it doesn't protect. It's the airspace that protects it. It's not the cloth necessarily. It's the fact that the cloth creates a barrier that as cold air falls, it kind of bounces off and rolls around. And it creates a space where the hot air can still stay trapped up inside of that, that cloth. And so anything that's touching the edge is eliminating that air gap and now susceptible to the freeze. And so if I wrap it like a lollipop and try to tie it down around the base, uh, I'm actually making more of my plant touching the outer edge, which is going to get to the, the cold. You know, we're not, this isn't a, it's not a blanket like you or I would use to try to keep warm. It's, it's just a cloth. You know, one layer, not multiple layers. So just remembering that is an important piece. Um, and as as we get deeper into winter, I mean, we're going to be talking about this probably a lot more. <laughs> but good to oh. get some frost cloth. You can get it for pretty cheap right now. I like the white stuff, that white or grays, that um, still allows a little bit of air to, to, to pass through it. More what I'm interested in is letting water through when it does rain and we do get some moisture. I don't want uh, that to just bounce off. I don't want a total um, impervious... Uh, Cloth, I want something that can actually breathe a little and allow the water through.
1: And it doesn't seem like it right now, but when we do hit those critical freeze dates, you can't find frost cloth anywhere. No. I mean, it, it clears out of the shelves immediately. So it doesn't feel like we may not have a cold winter right now. It may feel like you don't need it. But if you've got younger plants, tropical plants, something you want to protect, now's the time to go get that frost cloth and have it on standby just should that 35 degree hit, you know, in, in the next couple of weeks.
2: Exactly. Another backup is months. getting a, like commercial grade landscape fabric actually can work as a frost cloth gives you about a, you know, a plus five degrees. And that's usually how these frost cloths are rated. And so if you want a plus five degrees, that's going to be plus above the 32 degrees, your freezing point. And so that gives you that, that gap so you know how effective it's going to be. And uh, for the most part here in the Valley of the Sun, that's about all you need. A plus
1: five, maybe a plus seven type rated frost cloth for yourself. All right. So now's the time to get prepared. Hopefully we do get a nice winter, kill off some of the bugs, get a little deep freeze. And when we get back, we've got Dave on the line who wants to join the conversation. But we're also going to talk about our tree of the month, the Canyon Hackberry here at Rosie on the house.
0: What's the tree's least favorite month? September. Timber. <laughs>
1: That's one of my kids would call that one a dad joke. Dad, dad jokes. Dad, dad
2: <laughs> jokes. <laughs>
1: well, let's talk about our tree of the month real quick. The Canyon Hackberry. Do you have to worry about it timbering down or is it a pretty sturdy one?
2: No, it's a pretty sturdy one, especially here in Arizona. I mean, it is resilient under all the harsh conditions we throw out here in Arizona—from the droughts to the heat to the to the freeze. It's a very resilient tree. You know, been around for a very, very long time, and it's native to this uh, southern and western part of the United States. Native Americans used it all the time. It's great for—it's actually a food base for a lot of Native American cultures. They used it as a food base. That berry has a nice sweet. They've even made jams out of it and stuff like that. Let it dry out. They can grind it down, work it into um, a meal and make a make almost a bread with it. so it's a it's a great you know a top desert edible in my mind if you're looking for something that's that's very useful. Uh, dogs actually really love the leaves of those things too for some reason. Hmm. so it's it's kind of an interesting piece of the puzzle like they like grass. so if you find a dog that loves grass, they're probably gonna sniff out a hackberry sapling and they'll eat the leaves right off of those things if you got them out wandering around Now, how much space do i need
1: for a canyon hackberry
2: they'll grow about 20 to 50 feet tall um and about as wide and typically what we'll find them uh, is more around 8 to 10 feet in in nature and for most people's yards you kind of look at it in a similar similar fashion a little bit smaller than your palo verde and your mesquite trees in terms of its natural growth habit it grows a lot slower than both of those but it uh, is a beautiful tree, semi-deciduous, I would call it. They call it a deciduous tree, meaning it loses its leaves in the winter. But what I find is that it does hold its leaf a bit longer, especially uh, here in the warmer parts of Arizona. Um, and it's, it's got a smaller leaf, uh, and uh, the leaves are not very tasty yourself unless you get the sapling new leaves. So I'll just tell you that. It's, otherwise, it's a, a woody uh, leaf taste. Uh, and it tastes just like I'm probably explaining it. It doesn't taste great. But it won't, won't kill you or hurt you. It does have some value to it. A lot of good fiber. <laughs>
1: and somehow the dogs love it.
2: <laughs> and somehow the sapling leaves the dogs definitely love. And that's more palatable. I might even consider putting a sapling little leaf into a salad and and consider eating it and making it food.
1: Now, what kind of water
2: requirements does this tree They. Eat? rarely need any supplemental watering so after its first year in uh, native arizona they only need about seven inches per year which is traditionally what we get here even in the the drier parts of the valley and and uh, and that's all it really needs so if you give it some water for the first year maybe once a week a little bit of water it can work it works really well in uh rocky type soils so if you're in the foothills and areas it only needs about a foot deep of any soil base or anywhere where its roots can grow and it'll still establish itself well and hold itself down pretty pretty darn good. Doesn't need it doesn't have a deep tap root, doesn't have any requirements of deep watering. It's more of a surface watered type uh, desert adapted tree uh, and so it's uh, pretty easy to put in a harsh space that has really almost no nutrient in the soil. I mean it's it's good at cultivating the nutrients it needs just out of the rock base and the minerals that are there, and
1: the birds that love to sit in the tree and drop its droppings there. So that's kind of how they grow. Now, a lot of our native desert trees, they like to grow as a shrub. I mean, they grow up as a tree, but they always grow their branches back down to the ground. It's their sunscreen uh, protecting the trunk are hackberries are these canyon hackberries like that or very similar make them a shade tree
2: you can shade tree them a bit more i mean similar to our ironwoods that's how i like to see them trimmed is similar how i see the ironwoods they kind of canopy out a beautiful specimen type tree and uh, and then it'll drop berries usually around this time of year a little bit sooner than this you'll get the little berry drop um and those things will be picked up quail love them a lot of the birds love them and stuff and so if you want to attract wildlife the the net leaf hackberry the canyon hackberry great option to bring
1: into your garden and with the berry, do we get like a bloom, some color?
2: There's really no, it's, it's indescript, I would say in terms of the bloom. And it's technically not a berry, you know, it doesn't have multiple seeds. It's just got one kind of core seed to it. And, uh, yeah, and, and those, those little things, they break down into the soil well. So it's not a, it's, it's not hard. They, they do call it, they do consider it kind of a messy tree. So I wouldn't put it within 20 feet of a pool. But uh, if you've got a desert landscape, it, it, it does drop some, some things there into the desert ground, but it does help cultivate its own little microclimate for itself. It's, it's really good at that and creating a nice little space for other things to grow, like your aloe vera is another thing. It's a great nurse tree for a lot of the more tender but lovable uh,
1: plants that we have here in the desert. Justin Rahner of Agriscaping in studio with us. one 767 4348 That's one triple eight rosie for you. David from Gilbert. Good morning, sir. How may we help you? Good morning, gentlemen.
0: Uh, I have a quick question. Uh, I understand that Bermuda goes dormant when you get down into the 50 degrees areas. And I want to overseed with rye, my question is I understand that Bermuda has a shade tolerant seed. Does rye have a shade tolerant seed? Because I have a section of my property that is covered by the roof of an existing, the next door neighbor.
2: Yeah, so on that, the, the rye seed, rye is usually much better uh, actually at growing in the shade, especially if you're going with some, somewhat of a perennial type rye is what I'd recommend for the conditions that you're talking about. And it, the Bermuda will go dormant, but it really doesn't go dormant till about December, in all reality out here. And so people are shaving them down and then putting in your ryegrass. And now's a good time to make that transition. I don't always recommend that you just scalp the thing down unless you have really undulating soil and you got a lot of conditions like you might've had underneath that tree with the roots exposed. And so I might shave it down just so I can bring in a little bit of top dressing and add my seed in for my, my rye to help improve my entire lawn look and condition for years to come by helping flatten out that soil and kind of cover those roots back up again. And then that per, the perennial rye is preferred in my book because that'll grow and stay green a little bit longer. It's not as sticky, doesn't get as wet, doesn't require as much water in order to get it to really start growing and thrive. And then it also doesn't inhibit the Bermuda from growing back as much the following spring because that's another thing that happens a lot with people that are transitioning Bermuda to uh, rye and then rye back to Bermuda. They might do it too thickly with the traditional rye, and then it actually inhibits the Bermuda grass from going fully dormant because there's a lot more water involved, and then it doesn't grow back as easy the coming the next spring. So we highly recommend more of a perennial-type rye, low-water-use rye, uh, so that you're not drowning out the roots of your dormant Bermuda, and then you don't have any Bermuda next.
1: I'm glad you said that I'm gonna have to change my strategy mine always was I want really heavy heavy ryegrass coverage because like you said the Bermuda doesn't go dormant till later so my thought was well I'll just put in more rye because it grows straight and tall it'll just it'll cover even though it might not be dormant I'll have so much ryegrass and tall enough I won't notice that but that's bad for the Bermuda I'll buy you tall, tall trees and all the waters
2: and the seas. I'm a fool, fool, fool for you. Yeah,
1: I'm a fool, fool,
0: fool for you.
1: Beautiful Arizona Saturday morning. How can you not be excited with the beautiful weather we're getting out there this morning? Just something about that little chill that just sends goosebumps up your back, and it, it makes you excited. You know, we, we made it through. <laughs> made it through, and then feel more alive. When
2: those, when that, uh, those goosebumps go cr- cr- crawling up your back, I mean, it's, it, it's invigorating.
1: It's invigorating. That's definitely true. one 767 4348 That's one rosie for you to join the conversation and talk with Justin Ronner, Agriscaping, anything you're working on in your landscape and garden. We start this segment with Connie in Phoenix wants to talk about mulch good morning welcome to the broadcast
0: hi good morning thanks guys for taking my call um i have a kind of an odd question because i'm very much of an overthinker my neighbors planted oleanders about two years ago right up against our common wall and it's right where i had several garden beds so i've spent the last several weeks moving the beds because I'm getting oleanders up into the garden beds.
2: And they're going over the top of the wall?
0: No, under the footing of the wall. Oh boy. Yeah. But we have been getting a lot of shed, the flowers and the leaves, And obviously I'm worried about them because I have animals and I know that they're poisonous. Um, But my question is the mulch that I have pulled out of there, as I'm going through it and reusing it or was going to reuse it, there's a ton of those dead flowers and leaves in them. And I've picked and pulled and sifted, and I'm just wondering, is it okay to remulch that? I'm worried because if it's poison, is it going to go away?
2: Well, with the the with the oleander, the mulch that comes from that, I mean, they are leaves. It's 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 a matter that can be broken down. Uh, I like using that as kind of something that goes underneath other trees or bushes, not necessarily in my flower gardens or my edible gardens. I try to keep those distance from that. It is still a material that can break down and be beneficial to your soil in a compost bin. So it fully composts down before you then use it in your other parts of the garden. That's still very uh, useful. And so I like gathering that stuff up. I mean, even sending it to your green waste recycling centers, and they actually can take care of that for you. and, And it gets repurposed to other places in the valley where it can be of most use and so if you do have green waste recycling opportunities nearby i would highly recommend moving that to to those grain green waste facilities if you don't have the space on your own site Otherwise, yeah, throwing it under some of your other trees, fruit trees, anything that has a carbon base or a nice barky type wood, then any of those toxins will be negated through that process. It's, nature has already found a way to break down some of those toxins, make them more u- useful to us, but I definitely wouldn't be planting them or putting that type of mulch on top of areas where I'm cultivating things like root crops and other things where a, a, a risk of some of those toxins being in my food
1: level might be, uh, might be there. So. And they say poison, but, I mean, the, the volume that it would take to really have a negative effect is pretty significant. And they taste awful, so it's not like something's going to sit there and keep eating it.
2: Right. If you can, if you can even get enough of, uh, of a, a will to swallow the, the, <laughs> the terrible flavor of, a, of an oleander plant, you would get an upset stomach. And that's really what ends up happening. You get an upset stomach, and that, that can be obviously a, an, an issue for people and, and for dogs and animals and stuff like that. For the most part, though, your dogs are going to stay away from it for exactly that, the taste. They're going to take one little bite and spit it right out. So although it is toxic, it, uh, and definitely the smoke from the branches can be very toxic, so that's another thing. Don't
1: use oleander branches as firewood. That's not a, not a very effective use of that plant. Well, stay tuned, Connie, because our next caller wants to talk about removing oleanders. And there might be a tip in there for you to, to learn, even though it's your neighbor's oleanders. We'll just keep that on. Well, way. hopefully,
2: it's your neighbor <laughs> calling in asking about how to remove her oleanders.
1: <laughs> it is. But before we get to uh, that oleander removal question from Diane, uh, the garden tour is coming up.
2: Yes, yeah, so we've got a special garden tour we do in the fall. Uh, we team up with uh, Flower Street Urban Gardens, Alex Billingsley, who do a great little a uh, little garden tour right off of 44th Street and Flower so if you want to check that out check out agerscaping.com go to events and you'll be able to sign up for free but this this sign up we've got a limited amount of space for parking and people so it's going to fill up quick it is a free tour i mean you can see in-ground raised bed wall gardens chicken uh, setups tropical trees and plants Fruit trees, all, all there, beautifully organized uh, there in the garden. We'd love to see it. It's, it's coming up here in the next week or so, and we'll have a couple different uh, sign-up times. So please uh, sign up early so that you can get a spot for yourself, your family, if you'd like to come join us. It's a good time. And Alex
1: really created a pretty interesting gardening system.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it's it's becoming known almost worldwide now. He's been uh, helping send these these garden wall systems all over the world, uh, and uh, and he builds a lot of them still right there on his original property off of Flower Street. So you can see some of that stuff there as well. We love him. We've we've helped cultivate that that uh, system in a way to grow food and growing food for people at home, uh, backyard gardens, uh, patio gardens. I mean, once you understand microclimates, man, these things
1: can be used in so many different ways. And if you're not in a home a condo and you We've got a patio you know these are great applications for balcony gardening
2: absolutely get a one-tier system or a double-tier system you can throw them right on your balcony and again if you know what the microclimate is you're going to have your own recipe for success for that space no matter what direction your your property's facing or which direction that the uh, the planter is facing you know whether it be in full sun or full shade there's something you can grow here in arizona on those gardens very good and again that is coming up when that's coming up. I think it's in 2 weeks, so not this uh, this uh, coming Saturday, but the Saturday after that. I think it's the weekend. I think it's the the
1: Halloween weekend. Okay. And so come join us for that. Sounds good. agriscaping.com. Now, let's get to Diane who wants to talk about ripping out those oleanders. Good morning and welcome to the program.
0: Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay, terrific. Um, I'm planning to renovate my backyard. I have 30-year-old oleanders. Um, the base of the oleander root system is probably about two and a half feet wide. Um, and my concern is, when they're removed, and I want to take the root, the trunk out, um, will it affect my grapefruit tree, which I, is about three and a half, five feet maximum distance from the closest oleander?
2: Well, thankfully, the core of that oleander is not growing likely right where your grapefruit tree is. However, it's going to need to be dug out. The core of that oleander is going to need to be dug out so it doesn't grow itself back. Now, you can leave the rest of the roots in the ground. We like to put a bit of a beneficial bacteria inoculant after we pull pull the core of that oleander out of the ground. We'll put that in the ground and then cover it back over with some good mulches and other things that'll help break down the remainder of those roots so they don't be sprouting back up on you. And that would actually be a benefit to your nearby plants and trees if you have them. So that's kind of the way we would approach it. Congratulations on making a shift and change away from the oleander. We hope more people take that uh, and start shifting towards things that are more useful and certainly less invasive in, in your landscape. There are beautiful plants and trees, but there's other options, so
1: hopefully you're finding those. And when you're talking about removing the core, what do you like, napalm, dynamite? Uh...
2: <laughs> just a physical removal of it. Hopefully there's enough space in your garden that you can get back there with a little mini excavator or something because that size of a core is going to be, you know, might go down about four feet where, where we'd need to get to the base of that core. And, it's, uh, and just digging it out physically is the easiest way to make sure it doesn't come back. We, we don't really advocate using a lot of these toxic Uh, chemicals and stuff, especially when you have shared root systems, like she's talking about, where it might affect additional plants and trees and and cause some major dieback, because we've seen that happen a number of times from from people well-meaning to try to get rid of something they don't want, and by – You know, putting a toxin into that and putting those systemic toxins, it might kill additional plants and trees that share the root system. Because there is a beautiful ecosystem of beneficial bacteria as well as mycelium that create a synergistic relationship under the soil that you don't see. And they actually are linked together in many cases. And so
1: those toxins could actually travel across that and kill the other plants. So be careful with that. Now, a lot of good old boys, you got to just back the truck up and hook a chain up to it. And that works, but you got to have an extra an extra tool to it and it's a wheel so get a rim you don't want rubber on it because it doesn't stand up you get just a a rim it'll stand on its own put that rim as close to whatever you're trying to pull out if it's a post in concrete if it's a root ball of an oleander so your chain comes straight up and over the the wheel and then tie that to your truck so, as you start to go forward, it pulls the root straight up instead of through the ground. And I mean, you can pull out things you, you wouldn't think you could. I mean, it just that straight up force, boom, pops them right out. Yep,
2: that's a good way to go, especially with smaller things and, and some of these big guys. What you'll want to still do is get a, a nice saw and actually cut some of the roots around the base. So, you're cutting that core, you know, relieving some of the pressure. So, as you're pulling that out, I mean, that's a great technique to be able to pull it out with that rim and pulling it up and out. Uh, you want to make sure that you've at least trimmed some of the major roots around there so you don't end up really pulling, pulling all this stuff away or causing
1: harm to your, your neighboring uh, grapefruit tree, like in this case. And what would you put back in replace of an oleander?
2: Well, in this, in this particular case, since they have a, uh, it sounds like a grapefruit tree really close nearby, I probably would elect to not have much there at all. If I'm trying to replace something like an oleander, if you were on uh, last month, one of our, our trees we talked about was actually the Arizona rosewood. And that rosewood tree—it looks very similar to your uh, oleander. Has the same beautiful evergreen effect, um, but it, in it, in and of itself, is a, a non-toxic plant. It's not going to be as invasive. Very desert adapted. Has beautiful white and pinkish kind of flowers, and so that would be a good alternative is to look out and try to find that desert, the Arizona rosewood tree. That'd be a great one in its place, and it does bush out just like an oleander does. Very similar height growth p- patterns and stuff. Has a little bit of serration on the tip
1: of the leaves, but as it grows, it gets a little more smooth just like an oleander looks. And oleanders have, I can't remember the name of the disease, but it seems like those older ones in the central Phoenix area, about five, seven Two years ago, I don't remember. No, it's still they going. Got, they got hit with. Yeah, it's a virus, uh, and it continues to affect a lot of them.
2: They'll get a virus, and and it's passed from leaf to leaf from little bugs and stuff that are traveling around through the valley, and so it it's affecting them, and it and it can be detrimental. Kill the whole tree anyway. Kill the whole plant, and it killed off thousands of them. Uh, this uh, yeah, this last last two years, it's been a been a big issue. People have been replacing them. A lot of people have been replacing them with. Um, I guess your upright um, ficus trees, your columnar ficus, and using, creating ficus hedges, which has been a, a good approach. And as long as we don't get a hard freeze, a really hard freeze, those things look beautiful for a really long time. But you can't eat ficus either. You can technically, but it's just the the little Do you fruits. You want to. No, not so much, <laughs> not so much. I mean, it is a fig tree and it does have little figs on it, but there's really not a lot of meat. It's mostly seed. And you got to wait until they're really ripe before they have any sense of sweetness. Otherwise, it's just bitter, chalky, yucky,
1: yeah, not so fun. And it's one of those when it gets really ripe, your narrow your window of time to consume those is very short. Very short.
2: Very short. I mean, if, if you like sunflower
1: seeds with a little hint of fig, that's kind of what they taste like. <laughs> that's one reason I love citrus so much. It'll stay ripe on the tree for months. Yes. And you can just, you know, gra- gradually as you go, pick one off, eat it, pick one off, eat it, pick one off, eat it. And I I love peaches, but I mean, your harvest time on those is two weeks, maybe. Yep. And you, know, you got to fight the birds the whole time.
2: Correct. And there are some varieties. There's some Indian figs, uh, more Indian varieties of ficus that have a larger fruit, and they're ever-bearing, and those might be some other ones. If you want the fruit and you want a ficus kind of look, you want to look into more Indian-type varieties, and those will be great.
1: Hello. I'm Bobby Sarafin, general manager of Mission Hardwood Floor Company. You are listening to Rosie on the House. Final segment here in our Outdoor Living Hour, our Tree of the Month was the Canyon Hackberry. We covered frost protection, nailed a few calls on oleanders, and now let's get to a little bit of tree planting because uh, this is the kind of weather you would want to dig holes in versus two months ago, and the trees appreciate uh, this type of weather a little better than getting planted in the summer as well.
2: Absolutely, a lot less root shock when you're transplanting trees right now. These aren't this is not the time for bare root tr- planting though. This is you know, you got a nice potted tree and there's a lot of our nurseries here in the valley are restocking with their with their their trees that have been just growing in the nurseries, uh, growing in the in the offsite nurseries and so now they're starting to bring them back in, a lot of new fruit trees available that uh, were brought to the valley, you know, early part of the year. And now they're looking beautiful and amazing and uh, time to get them, planted, to get them in the ground. You know, it's when's the best time to plant a tree? <laughs> well, yesterday. But it, it, it is technically for Arizona the best time to plant the widest variety of fruit trees and uh, shade trees. It's, it's right
1: now. Now, when you're selecting your tree, if you're going for something edible, something that's fruit producing, it's not like you plant it today and you're going to have fruit tomorrow.
2: No, uh, unfortunately, for most, you know, like, also, when do I get? When do I get my fruit from this thing? So we we recommend if it's in a pot right now and it's in at least a, a five or at least a fifteen gallon pot right now, I would anticipate you'd still be able to get some fruit next year. But if you want it to really grow and thrive, you're going to want to pick off the majority of that fruit for its first year and allow it to establish that root system. Now, one of the benefits, though, of having one that's already leafed out and potted and it's got some, you know, might have some fruit on it right now, a lot of citrus trees do, is that you'll be able to keep that fruit. Now, if you keep that fruit, you're going to be stunting the growth, of, the long term growth of the tree. So just be aware of that. But if you're putting it in a small backyard like most of us have around here, that's not going to be a problem for you and you can have fruit from now and forever. And, uh, and so that's really cool and that's a great thing. So if you're planting citrus, you know, go to the nurseries that have a lot of good citrus varieties and, and you'll be able to see fruit on the tree. That's the best indicator it's going to produce fruit for you. It's already got fruit on it because uh, there are sometimes we get some subcultivars or some variants that end up with absolutely no fruit, especially when it comes to lime trees and especially the uh, thornless lime trees. If you're wanting to get a thornless lime, I would only grab the tree that already has fruit on it. Because there are many that will produce a very minimal amount of fruit and others that will produce a ton. It's, it's a cultivar that hasn't been fully, I guess, uh, cultivated to the point uh, or matured to the point that we get it always with fruit. Because some people do want a fruitless lime look in their landscape. Now, I'm not one of them, but uh, they do exist. I've heard that those people exist. Um, Just like the fruitless olive people exist, I love the fruit from the olive. I want to have anything that will produce for me. But with those citrus, find the one that's already got some citrus, some growing on it, and that's a good indicator you've got a very fruitful tree. It doesn't seem that there's very many ornamental citrus anymore. Not anymore. We don't see it. I mean, they use the rootstock of that ornamental citrus for almost everything. I mean that sour orange rootstock uh, that that is very very heavy in the industry as the rootstock, but then they're grafting in something more with more utility to it. And I definitely appreciate that that exists. Now you can still get them; the larger nurseries can still get a hold of that sour orange, but I wouldn't recommend it because it's the most deceptive fruit, <laughs> I think, on the planet. And there there have been stories told uh, from many pulpits uh, and churches and stuff about that sour orange, and don't be deceived by something that <laughs> didn't go so well and, and so you got to watch out for that i mean it is a terrible fruit it's not one that you'd like to eat you can make a uh, uh there's a, some type of jam you can make out of it i've heard and, and we've had some clients try it out and pull it off but all reality it's bitter and it's no fun so get something that you might love to eat get a blood orange or get pomelos or get get something more uh, tasteful and you know more fun that you can get the You know, the variegated pink lemon. I mean that's a beautiful, beautiful tree all on its own and it has amazing fruit that you can get almost year round off of trees like that.
1: Now let's quickly if you're going for shade though, trying to shade the house, a patio, porch, sitting area, whatever the case, what's a good Tree that's going to grow tall enough to be a nice shade canopy?
2: Well, first thing my question would be is uh, are you looking for shade year round or just in the summertime? If you're looking for shade year round, then you're going to want to look for a tree that's going to be an evergreen. And so you can get things like the ficuses, but get a more of a full grown, not a columnar ficus, get a full size Natita. Uh, But then we look in other shade trees if you're okay with it losing the leaves in the winter, which I like, you know, your ash trees, a lot of the ash varieties, Fantex, Bonita ash, uh, Arizona ash. You, you got your red push pistache. That's another beautiful, big, round tree. Pecan trees, if you're looking for something edible, that can be a big shade tree, but you got to give it 20 years. You know, those kind of <laughs> things. Those are some good trees. If you're looking more desert adapted, your your regular old um, native um your native mesquites, your palo verdes grow pretty quick and can provide some shade if you got that kind of a landscape or even the acacias. I mean, I like the shoestring acacia if I want a really tall shade kind of tree to hide the the neighboring uh, apartment complex, you know, that's a good one that can do
1: good for many people to make that work. And as we wrap up this hour, uh agriscaping, y'all do, you know, everything we're talking about here today Uh, You know, you you guys have a different approach to landscaping.
2: We do. I mean, we focus our our specialty is in elegant, edible landscaping, but we are an education, almost education first. I mean, we started in the education space teaching people how to do it for themselves, so we work a lot with the DIY world. But we're also a full consulting, design, and installation contractor, and we're doing a lot of projects around the valley. And so if you want to know what you can do, what your yard can produce for you, go to agriscaping.com and go to Get Started. That's our first step and we can help you really identify what you either are already doing and what can do better, or what, if you want to really make a remodel or a brand-new build, we can help you really identify what's going to be the best use of your
1: space for you and your family, regardless of what beautiful things you want to put in there. We can make it happen. And Halloween weekend, you guys have the garden tour with Alex Billingsley and Flower Street. Uh, Yep, so check that
2: out, Uh, agroscaping.com, Go to events, and you can
1: see what cool tours and things we got coming up. And then when is Queen Creek Botanical Gardens opening up for
2: the fall? Oh, man, I wish I knew the answer to that. We're hoping November 17th, but we'll see. Buildings are still under construction, but hey, we're getting signage now.
1: First botanical garden west of the Mississippi in, what, 50 years? Probably. I believe that.